One day, a friend of yours sends you a link to a website. This website is offering young men a trip to LA, a hefty paycheck, and a stay at a five-star hotel. The only catch is that these men need to endure some on-camera tickling. This is the story that exposed competitive endurance tickling to the world. Friends, first things first, before we even dive in, what is your reaction to being tickled? Like, how many seconds need to pass before you, like, slap the shit out of a person? Now, imagine that your hands are actually tied and you are literally, like, strapped to, like, a genealogical chair or, like, a mat, kind of like one of those gym mats that you used in PE, and you can't defend yourself, because that is truly what this story is all about. It's making me so uncomfortable. I have never jumped out of my skin as much as just watching this documentary and just, in general, watching all of the clips in for research purposes, okay? And this is a fetish for some. I'm not shaming you. I'm not shaming... I just need to like, understand it better psychologically, and that is why we are here. We are back to my favorite word, my favorite word of the day. The word is fetish. Everybody has them. Mm -mm, don't lie to yourself and others being like, mm, fetish is the word I know nothing about, bitch. Who, who, who you are? No, you have them since you were the age of 13, sitting at your laptop, looking up erotic so Admit it to yourself right now. Okay, sounds like a bit of a personal story, but I am not uh, against any other F-words. Yeah, I'm actually a big lover of all of the F-words out there. Come on, for example, fiction. Fiction, you see, Agatha behind me, fiction. Big, big on fiction. What else? Fracture. Fractured ribs. That went so real quick. Um, fantasy. Fantasy, big on fantasy. Super, like, that, that one, you know it's true. You know it's true, they don't, but sure. Fictitious, that's same as, as fiction, Maya. Uh, fiscal, fiscal receipts. Are we, yeah, are we, are we done? Are we done? Funnel. Funnels! Funnels! They make the liquid just pour seamlessly and not, like, make a mess. <laughs> me prolonging. It's like me doing math in my head, trying to think of, like, other words. Fresh. Fresh fruits and vegetables. Stop this right now. Cut all of this out and move the fuck on. <laughs> stop it! Stop it right now! If it's not in the script, stop including it! Anyways, to drive that point, to make that segue, to wrap it all around, what is your reaction to tickling? Because mine would probably be thinking of all of the other F words that I could be doing instead of fucking tickling. Okay. So, I usually on this channel try to bring the stories where I say, put aside everything that you know about true crime and I have never meant it more honestly than on this occasion, because this documentary, I welcomed it in my life. I like little Nuna Nana did like a little baby. It was a slow burn, but I would still recommend you watch it. It's an hour and a half, so, you know, it could have been a bit shorter. But for the shock factor, I therefore recommend you watch it after listening to this. And also because probably YouTube is gonna copyright anything and everything that I would overlay, and I don't also want to be in, like, legal issues with, like, people that I talk about, so there'll probably be a lot of blurring, or just not including the videos. So, I listen to the story, and then watch the documentary and the weird videos if you can endure, because the grip has never not quite been gotten, like in this story. The grip just, no, they just gave up on the grip, okay? Every single person in the story just gave up on the grip, especially the production company. So, without further ado, Maya is the name. Tickling! Bizarre. Is the game of the day. Let me get out of the silly, goofy mood, leave that behind, and let's dive in. Tickling! Truly! Tickling! A bit fruity, a bit fruity of a topic for the day. Let's do it. Our story today starts in 2014 with a guy named David Ferrier. 
David was a journalist for TV free station in New Zealand, and it was actually his friend that sort of started this whole avalanche. So his friend was on Facebook, and there were these targeted Facebook ads that just popped into his timeline. And these friends sort of all revolved around asking you, questioning you, tempting you to see, are you ticklish? Are you into watching videos of other people who claim that they are actually ticklish, but are also enjoying being tickled for views? So this friend, full well knowing his friend David and that this might be of interest to him, sends him the link to one of these ads. If you consider yourself my friend, by the way, this is your warning, if you consider yourself my friend and you don't do this with the bizarre shit that you find as your Facebook ads, you're not my friend. That's it. Friendship eliminated. This is it. You don't start my fucking own avalanche. I want my own tickle. David's friend clicks on the Facebook ad that leads him to a Facebook page, and the Facebook page leads him to a website. This website was offering young men from all over the world, sort of think 18 to 24, paid trip to LA, accommodation in five-star hotels, and thousands of dollars in cash payment. The only thing they had to do was to show up in that hotel room that is paid for them. Somebody is gonna wait for them there, tie them to either a bed or a chair or a mat, and tickle them. These videos on average last, I would say, 17 minutes. So we've seen some a bit shorter. Some of them last about half an hour. So these boys were about to endure some tickling for quite lengthy period of time. But they would get paid, again, on average, around $2,000 in cash. And even better, now David, looking at this, thinks, well, why not post on their Facebook page? So he asks on the Facebook page if any New Zealanders have participated in this. And this is when he gets a reply from the company that was named Jane O'Brien Media that really sparked the whole interest into this story. Had it not been for this reply, we probably would have never had a tickle documentary. This story would have never been exposed to the public. But because of a public post on Jane O'Brien media wall, David also got a public response. And this public response stated that they don't want to deal with a homosexual journalist. And before this correspondence, David looked at this as a story that he could do, like, a two-minute skit for TV Free on. He looked at it more as if, like, hey, there are these tickling competitions that you might not have known of. There is this thing that's called competitive endurance tickling that people might not be aware of. He didn't see this as a whole documentary, as some long-form storytelling. But when they responded with this comment, further saying that association with a homosexual journalist would bring the passionately and exclusively heterosexual athletic endurance activity into this dispute, Ferrier kind of thought a couple of things. First of all, he was bisexual. But how would this company know that? Like, what kind of digging did they do on him already? Secondly, he was a light entertainment journalist, and this kind of company should have really thrived on such a proposition, on his interest into them, for even a two-minute video which would bring publicity to this company. And now suddenly they seem to bring homophobia into it, they seem not to be interested. But third of all, it is tickling. It is tickling on screen for views. It's a bit fruity, okay? It's not the most heterosexual thing that you go out there looking for. It's not, like, really ooh, macho masculinity. So, he was like, okay, let me continue digging, because there seems to be a story here that's worth exploring a bit longer. A few more hostile emails back and forth with the correspondent for Jane O'Brien Media that called herself Debbie Deborah Kuhn, David decided to share this with this editor that he knew called Dylan Reeve. 
Now, Dylan was quite tech-savvy, and he dealt into the IP addresses, the company's internet activity, and he connected them all back to one parent company, and looking at that, connected it back to one man. The man's name was Norman Vanderkoos. A closer look at Norman Vanderkoos revealed that this seemed to be a 53-year-old man that called himself the Tickle King. And according to David, this is when things got really good. Real good. Real juicy. When they looked up the articles on the Tickle King, they found out that he was actually arrested by the FBI back in 2001, after an investigation that lasted for three years. At the time that the FBI raided his apartment, this man was 38 years old and he was a guidance counselor at West Hampstead High School on Long Island. He had a long rap sheet of being known for tormenting and impersonating people online. And for this, he was jailed for six months and fined around $5,000. But now, it seemed that 10 years later, this Tickle King was back. What made David and Dylan think that? That was the M.O. that they have read about in these articles, the modus operandi, the way that he operated back in the day, about 13 years ago. He would publish the ads saying, are you ticklish or like how much tickling can you handle? But he would always be targeting the same age group and always be going for heterosexual males that are usually fit, sort of like athletes, sportsmen. And even back in the day, something that the Tickle King took huge pride in was how many people would actually end up making the cut. So he would say out around 1,000 applicants, only 12 of them would make the cut, would make it to one of his videos. So people were only getting the best, and that is what they would pay the premium price for. But another thing that Dylan and David have noticed looking at the videos from 2001 and the videos now is that there seemed to be a formula to it. Like, the guys would always show up, they would sort of be tied up or on the mat, and they would spend about 11 minutes facing down while a certain number of guys would tickle them, usually four. Then they'd be two minutes on their hands, two on their feet, and then they would be flipped over. If you think about it, on the surface, this looks like a decent business model. The men in the videos are making decent profit out of them. And the men behind the camera, the production everybody working for, Jane O'Brien, also seems to be profiting heavily on it. So, the only catch, really, would be if we are connecting this business to the middle-aged man that is the Tickle King, how does a middle-aged man get young men who are at the peak of their fitness between 18 to 24 years old to pose on camera for some tickling? As soon as David started posting about Jane and Brian on his blog, they fired back. They actually said that the representatives for Jane O'Brien Media are coming to New Zealand. So David decided to welcome them at the airport, and he waited for them with this rainbow LGBTQ kind of sign, telling them that they're welcoming the country. And immediately, you can see that they didn't expect it. They get off the plane, they come to arrivals, and they start arguing. They start threatening him. They say that this is defamatory, that this is invasion of their privacy, that he shouldn't be filming them, and that they can sue him for it. So David and Dylan sit down to have a drink with these three representatives that they have found at the arrivals in the airport. And here is where they will only learn the name of one of them, which would be Kevin Clark. And remember, Kevin, because he might pop up in this story later. So they sit down for a drink, and immediately, just the same hostility that David and Dylan have seen from them online, they kind of see in person. But in person, they disassociate themselves from Jane O'Brien. They say, we don't know this Debbie Kuhn person, we're not really involved. And basically, you should really stop digging. There's no story here. So, of course, this isn't enough for David. So, what he decides to do is 
technically follow them to LA, figure out where these tickling competitions are taking place next in Los Angeles, and go and intercept them and see if he can find out anything. And when he does, well, this is kind of underwhelming in the documentary, and this is why I'm saying it's really a slow burn. They kind of shut the doors in his face and say, you know, there's nothing here, while he can hear the terrifying laughter within, like, the pipes of the building. So he's like, I know that there is somebody being tickled there for money. What the hell are you actually hiding? It was here, with the door shut into their faces, that they realized if the Tickle King was actually running a legitimate, legal operation this time, they would have been in through those doors. People would be speaking with them. So, what that made them feel was that 13 years later, there was still something dodgy, something illegal, something that really smelled of catfishing. So, they return to New Zealand and they start a crowdfunding campaign on Kickstarter. And this is where they raise enough money to have resources to start interviewing people. Every single man that they interviewed mentioned one name. Terry, Terry DeSisto, going under the alias Terry Tickle. And this is when David and Dylan were finally looped into the world of how this man, the Tickle King, was actually recruiting these young athletes to pose in his tickling videos. In the online forums and groups, Terry DeSisto claimed to be a 23-year-old perky blonde Boston College co-ed, with a passion for watching videos of hot guys being tickled. Everything that they could date to Terry Tickle seemed to have originated with a website from around 15 years ago that started as a foot fetish website for guys, but then once Tickling was added to it, it kind of overtook the whole website and the Tickling part really took off. When it came to their targets, on the surface, it seemed that these were what they called fitness models. Men between the ages of 11 and 25 who were of athletic build. And these men would be promised very high pay, but never for adult content. In fact, in most of the videos, these men would be fully clothed. Sometimes they would be in different stages of undress, like... In some of them, as the video goes along, you see them without a shirt. But these were never pornographic videos. They never intended to feed into that, rather to feed into this competitive endurance tickling and how ticklish you are and how long you can resist it. But once they scratch the surface, they realize that this recruitment strategy is far from innocent. In fact, it seems really calculated and really thought through. So there were two target groups for Terry Tickle, if you wish. The first one were the MMA boxers, the mixed martial arts community. And once David and Dylan tapped into those forums online, they found a bunch of boxers complaining about the same erratic behavior by one recruiter, by Terry. According to the community, there are tickle cells all over the US and the world that Terry exploited that she used to get to people in these circles. And the particular reason here is that this person, whoever Terry Tickle was, knew that it isn't illegal to get out of the actual boxing match once the opponent is on the ground by tickling them. Listen, I don't know how Terry reached the conclusion between point A and point B, but she did, and it's creepy enough, because then having that knowledge, you kind of know that these men might be prone to tickling and also fit, like, the body type that you need for these videos. So then you target the Facebook pages, you target it with these ads, you target the community boards, and you will easily get men within that age range to sign up to get a couple of thousand dollars 
more. Because even if you take into consideration that these are boxers, you know, you sort of win some matches, you lose some. You don't have a consistent form of income that would justify you not accepting something like this, because you don't see the repercussions, you don't see the consequences. If you thought that connecting point A with point B within that target group didn't make any sense, well, the second target group for Terry were the Marines. And now why the Marines? Well, the catch here for the men was to look at this as a project, because tickling was being considered as a military tactic for the army. Tickle, torture. Think about it. <laughs> really think about it. Because if you think about the premise of tickling, the tickly, the person being tickled, is going to be showing the signs of approval. They will be laughing. It will seem as if they're enjoying it, which will in turn encourage the tickler to proceed. And they wouldn't notice the exact point when this social context just turns dark. So, as the tickler proceeds, they are ignoring the fact that tickling starts to cause cataplexy, which is the weakening of the certain muscles in the body, and is also the point when there is just complete loss of enjoyment, and you feel like you are being tickled, tortured. Now, torture through tickling isn't anything new. I suggest watching the infographics show video on it. Like, it is a form of torture that just isn't equally used because there are more really gruesome ones where you don't want to listen to somebody laugh and it's also really slow and ineffective. But David and Dylan called bullshit pretty quickly on this one. They didn't believe that there was any project, or at least anything official done by the military and by the marines that Terry was behind, because in the first place they didn't believe that Terry existed. But by interviewing people from both target groups, so both the MMA boxers and then some marines, they sort of got a feel of what would happen on one of these shoots. A lot of these men, first of all, would be kind of desperate for money. So at first they would get around 2,000, then if they show up on another shoot, you know, it's another 2,000 for what? For you to show up at a hotel that's paid for you and to be tickled for about half an hour. Like, yeah, your muscles don't feel anything by the end of it, but you get out of that room with about 2,000 pounds. All of the interviewees share the same feeling, that they would show up, they didn't know that they were going to be tied down, they would see, you know, other bodybuilders, other athletes there, and they would kind of treat it as, like, I don't know, shooting for a commercial. And every single time they would be getting tied down for a tickling session, they would just think, like, I wish, I just can hope that this doesn't get back to me, that nobody finds this on the internet. Once you finish recording, you get the cash on the spot, and you move on with your life. You go back to your boxing, you go back to your marine life, you go back to whatever the hell you were doing before. She publishes the videos on the Jane O'Brien Media website, and if the click-through rate is low, if the view numbers are high, Terry would want you back in one of the videos. And after some time, you know, you're kind of in an okay financial situation. You don't really even need this anymore. You aren't as desperate as you were when you started this. And you would say, Terry, like, you know, I don't really feel like it. Like, I don't want to do this anymore. It's tickling. It's freaking annoying. Then she'd be like, what about I get you tickets to your favorite band? Like, they are performing in town. I get you the tickets to their concert. What about I get you the newest computer? But the way the documentary formulates this is that after some time, a man has every toy that they wanted. They have everything that they wanted and they really don't want to be doing any longer. And this is when Terry would get pissed. And Terry being pissed is something you didn't really want because she would do certain things like write to your university and tell them that you are doing this on the side. Like, write to your colonels and your military base, and then they would demote you. Like, create a website that is under your actual name, sharing your personal information, including your address. And 
all of the videos that are posted on the website, sharing them on Vimeo, on Dailymotion, everywhere where you can find them, and then posting them in the Facebook groups of like the sports clubs that you belong to. Further, getting people to investigate you. Like a lot of these Marines were being investigated and then demoted because this isn't something that the Marine Force would necessarily like to be associated with. The same would apply with all of the MMA boxers, all of the football players. Because these trainers who would before push for these football players, for these boxers to be in the league, to be representing the team, now kind of had to step back and double take on this. Like, do I want somebody whose videos are online, who would represent this club in this light? Do I really want that? Because I would be the one to have to answer to all of the weird questions about it. If you were to refuse to go back to shooting the videos, well, then the threats would escalate. If you were a football player, Terry would send emails to the coaches that were looking to recruit you. Whoever you are, she would contact your potential employers and ruin your chances of being hired and progressing in your career. If you were a coach, they would send the email to the school where you were coaching saying that you were the gay-tickling fetishist. In the case of the Marine that David has interviewed, Terry shared his personal information but didn't stop at that and also accused him of committing around $1,200 worth of damage to the hotel room where the shoot took place. And he had to admit to the hotel room damages and pay them from his own money. If you were not to return after all of the threats, not only would she not remove the videos from the website that she created in your name, but she would publish them to other websites like gay porn sites. So after some time, these men didn't even want to speak to the journalists in question, to the Kiwi journalists, because they just thought they're just gonna bring even more trouble on themselves and that the best way to deal with it is to just stay silent and maybe nobody will even look for them online and be able to find this. Maybe this can finally stop so that they can just continue on the pathways that they were taking before they were in this mess. But one day, one of David's interviewees gets an interesting email. This email came from an anonymous source and it said, if you want to get rid of Terry once and for all, send her this zip file. So this man does and he also forwards it to David Ferrier. This zip file that David was about to receive contained hundreds of documents exposing who Terry DeSisto actually was. It appeared the Terry Tickle had the exact same IP address, the exact same name, the exact same signature on all of the emails as the Tickle King, the person that was investigated by the FBI 13 years ago and didn't really actually get to serve any time in prison. Because it will come as a surprise, as a shock through the nation, through the radio waves. But the person that could not take no as an answer was in fact a man. It was a man called David Diamato. There was never Terry Tickle. Actually, there was, which is a really creepy part of it, because Terry DeSisto, I think the name was Teresa DeSisto in real life, was actually a deceased person. David Diamato stole a dead person's identity and then just like switched up the social security number and then just pretended that he was this college girl online. Once they dig into David Yamato, they learn that not only he had that charge when the FBI raided his house in 2001, but also that he was responsible with a federal case about a cyber attack at Drexel University in 1997. And during this incident, hundreds of emails were sent to the students and to the college president requesting tickling videos. He wouldn't be charged for this incident because of the expired statute of limitations. But then the investigation would lead to the year 2001, where he pled guilty to spamming the computer systems of two other universities. 
This is where he was convicted of two counts of computer fraud and abuse and was fined $5,000 and sentenced to about six months in a halfway house. Once they look into his background, they realize he was the assistant principal, so that would have allowed him to understand college students, to dab into that target group. The MO matched somebody who would start threatening people and exposing their lives as soon as they would say no to the tickling videos. This seemed to be the man who was fully motivated by control these videos were giving him. And by control, he was having over everybody. So, those pieces were fitting into the puzzle for David and Dylan, but something wasn't. And that is what the rest of the documentary focuses on. And that is how in the name of Lord, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, was he funding this? He was flying men from LA. He was flying them from freaking New Zealand. He was paying for five-star hotel rooms. He was paying them 2,000 and more computers, cars, whatever. He was giving them as gifts. So, how? Not on the assistant principal salary, and he hasn't done that job in a while. And this is when they realized that his father passed away. And once he did, he left David Yamato $6 million in the checking account. And he had a trust fund. So David was technically a trust fund baby. All of these expenses were paid by the trust fund that his father left him once he passed away. So in short, 30-something-year-old David Yamato is into feed fetish videos. He realizes there is a market there, but he really didn't hit the point. He really didn't hit a nail in the head with his feed videos. So an idea pops into his head to breach into MMA circles, to breach within the online young marine communities, and to get them hooked, he poses as this person that maybe he knew, nobody really knows how he got to this Terry sister's identity, but he did. So he poses online as the woman who is of the target group age to get these men to record some tickling videos. This, in turn, becomes a business. He gets really hooked on it and he's using his daddy's money to pay for it. With the addiction, with the money this business is bringing, really what he gets hooked on is the control that he's having over these men, over the participants in the videos. And it is because of this control that once these men start backing out, he starts threatening them. Something that David Yamato won't do, though, is own up to it. And this is sort of where the documentary ends, with Dylan and David trying to chase him around town, trying to get him. Once he goes to his regular Starbucks, they have this whole operation. And in the end, David Yamato just threatens them. He actually threatens them with two lawsuits for defamation and slander. But then he withdraws them, and the documentary kind of hangs in the air, like, what is going to happen? Will he ever own up to it? Will these lawsuits go through? And they will have to, like, withdraw the whole documentary and everything. And what will happen with Jane O'Brien media? So that is where the documentary ends, but not our story. This is where Kevin comes into picture again. I told you to remember Kevin. Don't blame it on me. Who was Kevin? Kevin was the producer from the beginning of the story that flew to New Zealand. You remember the poster, the bottom poster? Yeah. Kevin motherfucking Clark. Our boy Kev here was the producer for Jane O'Brien Media. So he was familiar with all of the male models, including all of the male models that I haven't introduced by name that Dylan and David have interviewed. So what Kevin did is he created his own website. I think it's down now. I think it was called something like tickledinfo.com. And here he rebutted the documentary tickled point by point. He said that David Ferrier was actually coaching all of the people that he had interviewed and had one of the interviewees actually speak about it and say how incorrect the information that he was given in the first place was. I won't play this part here for copyright reasons, but it's just very obvious that 
this person that was interviewed, in fact, was possibly coached by Kevin, or just, you can see fear in his eyes, like, yet again, there is that intimidation that is coming from this group. It just seemed like they intimidated him and probably, again, promised that they will publish his details online or maybe had something over him for him to sort of rebut all of the details that he gave in the initial documentary. At least in my personal opinion, like from my perspective and how that looked to me compared how the interviews looked when David Ferrier was doing them. He got interviews with other people who had experience with Jane O'Brien Media to say how good the experience was, to say that there were never any repercussions that they could leave, you know, at any point. And then he mentioned David Yamato and the legal action that he is taking against the documentary makers. And because of this publicity, when he was asked if he knew whether David Yamato was connected to Jane O'Brien Media, he said, not to my knowledge, but that doesn't mean that he wasn't. So they're like, what do you mean? Like, you worked for it, you quite literally produced these documentaries, wasn't he the one paying you? And we have the proof that he was. There's like a whole ass payslip. So sort of like, Jane O'Brien, you know, David Yamato paying Kevin freaking Clark. So we had the proof that he definitely knew. But he said, which is one of the best parts of this whole video, the person I work for would have a much better idea to tell you. I don't ask my boss who his boss is or who he is working for. I have no knowledge and I do, like anyone else in the world, have non-disclosures of what I can and can't talk about. But the answer about David Yamato is no. Imagine getting a job at like Apple and being like Tim Cook who like, well, Steve Jobs started. I never heard, never heard of any of those people. <laughs> How do you get the job? I have never worked for a company where I didn't have to know who, like, the founder of the company was, but Kevin here apparently does. Kevin doesn't care. He just knows who his direct line manager is, and that's enough for Kevin, okay? So he puts this TV-free program that's called Nightline, who interviewed him and who he told, like, you know, no boss of a boss knowledge, in touch with his boss, his direct line manager, whose name is Luis Peluso. Now, Luis would be the person to pick up the pieces, and Luis was now the owner of Jane O'Brien Media. Well, rather, he said that he always was, and that David Yamato never had anything to do with it, even though we kind of have to prove that he did. But basically, the show must go on. Meaning that Jane O'Brien Media is online under a different name found the website. I found packages. You can still pay a decent price. There are tiers to it for all of your tickling needs. From Ferrier and Reeves' understanding, once watching the videos that Kevin was putting on this website, he kind of seemed to them like a middleman, kind of like Peluso, kind of like everybody that they have met receiving payments from David Yamato. But this is where the boys do what they do the best. They turn to crowdfunding again, because they don't give up. They want to get enough funds at least to pay for the tickets to go to the US again to try to reach to Kevin, to try to reach to Luis Peluso and see where Jane O'Brien Media is now. And they do end up funding this project and from what I've seen online, I think, I believe there's only 20 minutes of this, or I've only found 20 minutes on YouTube, but there is a sequel to Tickled that's called The Tickle King. And this sequel kind of explains that there were two lawsuits filed, but then that David Yamato withdrew them. And then during one of the screenings of Tickled in 2016, David Yamato showed up in the audience. And the Tickle King kind of focuses on the fact that Dylan and David suspected that Kevin and Yamato basically used the same trick that David Ferrier used back in the day when he was trying to expose Jane O'Brien media. 
which was to make this contraption of like a camera and microphone and put it inside of a coffee cup and then pretend like he's going with an empty coffee cup inside of a cinema to record everything that's going on, to record the movie and to record the Q&A afterwards. But they called the police and it ended up that they weren't or that they removed them from the coffee cups if they had them in the first place. And then the Tickle King also showcases the Q&A with Dylan Reeve after the movie where the Amato basically tells them to lawyer up because he is going to file an actual lawsuit and won't withdraw it this time because this documentary was full of lies and telling them that they didn't include all of the audio tapes because if they did include all of the interviews that it would show that they were lying in the first place. After the movie was released in 2016, David Yamato actually filed a defamation and slander lawsuit, suing them for 40 million. But he also ended up dying in 2017. Dylan and David posted a statement saying that they are incredibly sad to learn of David Yamato's death and asking for people to treat it with respect. But then the conspiracy started. There were so many people online saying, what if he isn't actually dead and he just wants to get away from the stress of all of it? So his family actually had to post a death certificate with like a cause of death. So I don't know, you can be believing whatever the hell you want to believe, but everything stays kind of up in the air, even with the publishing of the Tickle King. Like, can they still be sued? Can somebody still pick on this lawsuit after his death? Can Dylan and David still be sued by a dead man? Is Luis Peluso running this new website in a completely legit way? Do these men sign any form of NDAs? Are they informed how these videos will be distributed? Because according to their research, it is apparently legit now. But still, the website doesn't really give much information. There's no FAQs on it. So as far as we can tell, these men now aren't subjected to online abuse. Their full names aren't associated with these new videos. And that's great. But these videos are still being sold online under this fetish genre. And that might be something that these men are not aware of. They didn't imagine this would happen once they sign up for it, because they're still getting paid in cash. And the main question that is still up in the air, even after the exposure of this competitive endurance tickling, is why? One of their interviewees explained it in this way. There is pain in tickling. It's not always enjoyable. You're not laughing in the way you laugh as a joke. It can be used as torture and power play. There's also always one who is dominant and one who is submissive. It's a metaphor for the power and control we talk about in the film. And in the end, if you really think about the core of this story that doesn't really have closure, that is really open-ended, it is power play. It is the fact that they were paying these men good money to own them. It's just that these men didn't really know the extent they will be owned to. What the filmmakers said after all of the research they have done is that at the heart of the documentary is privilege. The people who don't have it and the corners they can find themselves back into. And the people who do and the escape routes it presents them with. But one thing that really looms over me that isn't answered by the documentary or by any of my research is just let's erase everybody in the past. Like, let's just take this for what it is, right? It is somebody figuring out that there is, like, a genre, there is a gap in the market, there is this tickling fetish that people will watch, that they will go online, they will pay some good money to watch, and in turn, well, they need to find right targets, good-looking men that other people would pay to watch being tickled. 
So as a business model, there is money to be made. Like people in the videos can make the money out of it and you by selling those videos online for a certain amount of money can profit out of it. So there is a business model there. But I feel most of people looking at this will look at it and be like, but this is laughable. Why would this be somebody's whole world? And then you kind of hear that resonate in your head and you realize that that is somebody's whole world. And that in the end, this whole story is about how far are you willing to go to protect the only thing that you feel you have the power over. Because in this story, there were many lines that were crossed, but if we are just thinking about this as business versus an obsession, there was a definite clear line that David Yamato did cross with Jane O'Brien Media. So I'm just wondering the successors of this business, the Louis Pelusos, the Kevin Clarks, all of the successors that are there on Ticklepedia or Ticketopia, whatever the new website is called. Is this just a business for them? Or did it go further than that? And is it already an obsession that they feel control over with the subjects that they have power over and the fetish industry that they feel belongs to them? That is the question that I would very much like answered, but that is also the end of the video on Tickled. What do you think about this story? Did I, was I right? Like, you know, move everything away from what you know about true crime. Why did you sound like Elizabeth Holmes there? There were certain parts in this video when you go into a deep voice, are you pretending you're Steve Jobs? But imagine, truly, going to Apple, or like, during an interview, and they're like, hey, so what's your opinion on Tim Cook? And you're like, who is that? Immediate exit. Get the fuck out. Goodbye. What you mean you don't know who, like, succeeded the company. Know your successors and know why they're succeeding you, you know? Truly, in every business, no, you're nothing if you're not a businesswoman, Maya. You're nothing if not a businesswoman. Know what reasons your successors are succeeding you for and then be able to answer those questions and respond to David Ferrier, Dylan Reeve, and me. Dylan, David, you're leaving my dream jobs, if you by any chance need <laughs> to see this video, which you probably won't. First of all, David, dark tourist, watch it on Netflix, okay? Everybody watch Netflix. I didn't know that was made by you, but now I will watch it because it's made by you. And also because it's interesting. So dark tourist, like, um, David Ferrier basically goes all over the world. I fucking hate your guts, David. And he speaks with, like, Jeffrey Dahmer enthusiasts, like, uh, Pablo Escobar enforcer. Basically, Charles Manson and was like people who were like obsessed with like serial killers and shit and he puts himself in like these weird situations because he's David Ferrier. Okay, you're living my life David and I will get there. I'm manifesting it for myself. So if you want me to live David Ferrier's life, don't forget to like and subscribe to this channel. Make this be my life. Make me be David Ferrier's successor. A week ago at work, I thought of this Kiwi guy that was doing some training. I thought that he was squatting. <laughs> this is not how you get it done. This is not how you succeed. What, is this you sucking up to David Ferrier? <laughs> I can't even. Like, it's the most recognizable accent, Maya. I still feel shame. And I made jokes about it. It's cool. It's all cool. <laughs> it's like, God recognize accent. Like the most immigrant story out there and you can't figure out accents. Okay, let's go to outtakes and then get out of this video. You let me know what you think about it. Where do you think the story is going? Do you think the new website is all legitness? And if so, why are they paying them in cash? You know, why is there no bank transaction trail out there? And also, if you are not familiar with the Elizabeth Holmes story, familiarize yourself with it. And the dark tourist. And I'm out. <laughs> Hype caffeine. Hyped on life. And out. What's la vista, motherfuckers? <laughs> There's so many things that I listen to in life that I'm like, I wish I created this. I wish I was famous enough to have made this myself. And this, this is one of them. This is one of them. Don't consider yourself and not send me the link, the Facebook ad that says, are you ticklish? I want to know everything about it.
Why is it only that when I'm about to record, I remember to water this motherfucker? <laughs> Actual plant killer. Okay, now I overwatered it. This. <sighs> Some things in life are just not meant to be. And me, being a plant lover, is one of them. I had to physically restrain myself. Why am I matching a curtain? I had to physically restrain myself from picking up like pigeon's feather from the road, from the street. Do you know how filthy that is? This is why we have COVID. Why did I want to pick up pigeon's feather? Come on, tickles, feathers, bullshit. Even though they use their bare hands in this video, which somehow makes it I actually was like leaning forward towards the asphalt and I was like, Maya, Maya, think it through. Like, what would be the point? Just you like doing the feather bits in the video, like it's a magical one. This ain't Hogwarts, bitch. Can't even be a proud Potterhead no more because of the just kidding woman. Like, you can. It's like, how many more thoughts do you have on completely unrelated topics? So there's no feathers in here because... Life is dirty enough anyways because of the sexual intercourse that we engage in. I shall make sense from this point on. This is serious. No, this is serious business. From this point on, only serious. I should really look up his age before making this comment. I shouldn't be making this comment in the first place. But listen, if there were no ring on this finger, if I were single, if I were single, I'm ready to mingle, because you know, if I were single, I'd be a predator. I'd be out on the streets, I'd be on Tinder again. <laughs> because I'm anti-social as fuck. So, um, yeah, and I'd be going for Dylan, you know? Dylan, like, was super quiet during this whole documentary. So, such a quiet personality, and then he went on stage and he was like, facts. This is it, the tickle king. He's like, I'll answer all your questions. You triple chin motherfucker. And I was like, Dylan, the mix of these two, the fact that you thrive on stage, but not in real life. Scorpio vibes, he probably He's <laughs> probably also a lot older than you. How old is he? Cut is so loud. Eliminate from production. Eliminate. <laughs> for a person that is shit-scared that a snake is gonna come out of the toilet when I sit on there and just bite me by the ass, just take me right then and there. I spent the longest time with the shitter, you know? <laughs> I spent some quality time on that fucking thing. Just uh, That is the definition of TMI. That is quite literally definition of TMI. You should know by now. If it's not in the script, leave it out of the video. Why don't you stick to your own goddamn rules? <laughs> but picture this. You see an ad that says, like, do you want to be a tickler or a tickly? And it's like both of them are equally fear-inducing. I mean, probably being tickled more so for me than some. But it's just... It's equal to me, like, when I was 18. And, uh... No, my please reveal more about the age and everything. Yeah, when I was 18, I was like, I really don't want to die a virgin. But who does? But it was a real fear in my head. I was like, you know what? I should. I should mature enough to do this. We can do it, Maya. Lose your virginity. Just go for it. Come on, Jeffrey. You can do it. <laughs> don't bring TikTok friends into this. Your fucking tickling fears. We are back to my favorite F word. If you're a podcast listener, you know it by now. What is it? It's fetish. It's such a lovable world. <laughs> it is a lovable world, Maya, yeah? It is a world that leads to the whole world of opportunities. Wow, round of applause. Wow. Sick, sick, sick. <laughs> you're sick in the fucking brain. 